Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Romans chapter 5. And if you are a visitor uh, today, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. And I would encourage you to follow along um, as we as we read Romans chapter 5, and then we work our way through verses 15 and verse 17 today. And for the sake of bringing us back together of where we've been, I want to read all of uh, chapter 5. Um, here is God's word. Therefore, since we've been justi- justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word. And may the teacher, may the Holy Spirit, so take his word and apply it to each and every heart. Give us minds that are attentive to your movement. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I read all of that, as I mentioned, to bring us back to, um, to our study through Romans. It's been a couple weeks. And in Romans chapter 5, there are three therefores. And so that was one of the purposes, because if you look at the therefores, uh, they are bridges. Chapter 5 is a bridge. It's a bridge from uh, what occurred before moving into the most pivotal of uh, chapters in Romans 6, 7, and 8, which really is the practical life of the justified sinner, is you'll see how 
doctrine applied is, again, Paul's method. He does that in Ephesians. Uh, he would do that uh, in Romans. And when you come to the book of Romans, it has been recognized as the most logical of all of Paul's letters. It is extremely uh, um, um, lofty, but it also is very practical. And what Paul does is he has large, logical arguments throughout, in particularly the first uh, three chapters, when he would argue in a right way with the Jews in regards to justification by faith. And so by way of bridges, and we're on the second bridge, verse 12, um, the first bridge was, was in chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith. What Paul is doing, he's taking us back to all of what has occurred from verse 18, chapter 1, through chapter 3, verse 20. And that is the condemnation of man. He has brought every single person, the religious person, as well as the uh, non-religious person, the Gentile. He has brought them under uh, the bar of God's justice, and they have all found, been found wanting. And so when he comes to chapter 5, therefore we have been justified by faith, he is saying, listen, all that I told you in condemnation, it has now come to, to, to be that you are justified, and the example I gave you was Abraham in chapter 4. So he would go on, though, in the, in the section uh, running through verse 11 of the first, uh, the first bridge, he would show us the fruit of justification. And if you were here for the ABF, that's what uh, Dr. Ferguson was stressing to us. The fruit of our union with Christ, which is justification and righteousness, is love. And we would see here in verses 1 through 11, we would see the love of God. First, the love of God shed abroad in the justified sinner. And then we would see the love of God in verse 8 on display. Is that while we were enemies and while we were hostile to God, he shows his love for us in Christ. And then we come to the second bridge, and that's in verse 12, the therefore, the second therefore. And what he does here that, running through verse 17, he establishes the two humanities. He establishes those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And those who are in Adam are under uh, the condemnation, and we'll talk about that, under the condemnation and the justice of God because they stand guilty as lawbreakers as well as volitionally through their conscience violating his moral law. And so then we see then the establishment of two humanities. And that is very important for us to understand. In, in an age where identity crisis is everywhere... Uh, whether it be sexual identity, whether it just be identity in general, uh, if the Bible was believed and we return to the Bible, we would understand that there's only two identities. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no other, other marks of humanity. And so Paul, in this second bridge from verse 12 uh, through verse 17, is that he will identify these two humanities. Those who are in Adam under condemnation and those who are in Christ who are justified and thus righteous. And there's a third bridge which is in verse 18 and Lord willing we'll get to that next week. And what I want to do with the third bridge is to really expand what he introduces in this second portion verses 15 through 17. And that is the reigning power of grace. Is he would use and tell us that grace reigns. Death once reigned, but grace reigns. But that's for another time. It'll be very encouraging as we will see that grace triumphs. Is that grace wins. But today we're in verse 15 and 15 through 17. And we're looking at the second humanity. 
The second humanity. In verses 12 through 14, we saw the humanity uh, of Adam, that those are transgressors. They're uh, under the condemnation of God. In verse 14, he would begin to transition by saying that there was a type, that Adam was the type of the one who was to come. And so he is actually saying that Adam was a type of Christ. And there is a, he is a type of Christ, but in way of contrast. And we will see that as it unfolds. And we'll look now at the humanity of Christ and what that means, in particular, the grace of God in those that are in Christ. Now, we find then in verse 15, is, and we looked at this the last time we were in Romans, is the purpose, or they should say, how this humanity is brought about. And this humanity is brought about by grace. All about grace. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. That's a very important statement, much more. Because Paul is going to start building the argument that where sin did uh, occur, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And in the Christian life, we need to understand the practical application of how grace is stronger than our sin. And so he would say that much more have the grace of God. And then he would go on and say, and the free gift. He would mention free gift five times, or in some translations, just the gift. But the point of is he emphasizes the freedom, or I should say the, the unmerited display of God's grace to those that are in Christ. And when he says to her in this phrase, the grace of God, we traced that through the scripture last time we was, we was here. And I would encourage you to take uh, and do word studies or do phrases and study those. Yes, in context. Uh, but let me give you a, just an illustration. Yesterday in the husband's study, you know, Matt Blazer led the study, and he did a word study uh, on the word bitterness. It was absolutely amazing. As you know where it says, uh, husbands don't live with your wives with bitterness. He expanded that and really showed us the seriousness of how God places bitterness in the life of his people. Well, the same thing here with the grace of God. Don't gloss over those words, the grace of God. And if you're a Christian for any length of time, you know what the danger you have is allowing the, uh, the amazing to become familiar. It's allow the amazing to become familiar. You know the grace of God. But Paul would, would have us to remember that the grace of God, and in particular, though, God would have us to remember just how amazing His grace is. And if you study those words, the grace of God, 19 times, just New Testament, 19 times in 18 verses in the ESV, 21 times, 20 verses in the NAS, and 24 times in 23 verses in the King James. Why is there such an emphasis on that phrase, the grace of God? Because God makes a big deal about His grace. And if God makes a big deal about His grace, oh, so should we. But another thing that we saw when we looked at just how dominant the grace of God is proclaimed in the Word of God, we saw that, uh, that great, the grace of God goes beyond salvation. It goes beyond salvation. Hold your finger uh, here on Romans 5, 15, and look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, is the classic text that shows us that salvation, or I should say the grace of God that brings salvation, extends far more than salvation. Do you realize that every single moment of your life from birth to death is grace dependent? Every single one. Even before you were a Christian, you were grace dependent. 
God gave you what theologians would call common grace. Look how he protected you. Look how he provided for you when you didn't even know him or had no desire to know him. And look how many times he prevented things in your life before you were a Christian. And then after you became a Christian, you were equally grace dependent. Every single waking moment of the day, we are grace dependent. And so look at Titus chapter 2 verse 11. And this will show us how when Paul says much more the grace of God, before he even talks about the grace of Christ, the grace of justification, the grace of righteousness, he wants us to focus on the grace of God in its, in its fullness. And we'll look at Jesus here. And what do we see is one of the first things that John says about Jesus in his opening of the gospel. He said he was full of grace. Titus chapter 2 verse 11, for the grace of God, this is one of those 18 times it appears, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, but that's not all. And I wonder as Christians, if we're so infantile, and I don't mean that in a, in a, in a condemning way, if we're so infants in spiritual things that we never get beyond the grace of God in salvation, that we never understand the grace of God and our need for the grace of God constantly. Look what, look what he says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now notice in verse 12, he adds this training us. Well, what trains us? The grace of God. So it's not only saving grace, it's training grace. He says training us to do what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you see the grace of God, it not only brings salvation, but it provides training so that you would live the Christian life from the inside out. It's lived from the inside out. He says that you would be self-controlled, that's inwardly, and that you would live upright and godly in the present age. He would go on, waiting for our blessed hope. Well, what empowers the Christian to wait for the coming of Christ? It's the grace of God. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. It's interesting that the exhortation of good works doesn't happen until after we understand that the grace of God that leads salvation is far more than just salvation. Well, let's go back to verse 15 of Romans 5. So then he would, he would emphasize the grace of God. And then he would unfold the benefits, for lack of a better word, of the grace of God. Now remember, he's defining the second humanity. He's defining those people and what they've received in the second Adam. And he says... That much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Now, I, I want just on a side note, though it's not really a side note. <laughs> yeah. If you look at verse 15, he says much more. And then also in verse 15, abounded. Then go down to verse 17, much more. What is Paul doing? Paul is establishing for us as believers of what we are in Christ because of the doctrine of imputation and that we're freed from being an Adam. What she's saying is you need to understand how powerful grace is. Grace has abounded. 
much more. So all that was possibly lost in Adam is not even compared to what Christ does for us. Calvin said this, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam to destroy. And so what we see in here is this unfolding of this treasure chest of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ that puts us in this new humanity to where Christians are to live above a culture in a heavenly culture that impacts the current culture. And it happens when we understand the abounding power of God's grace. I live too much in a world of worry, of discouragement, of joyless existence when God has provided everything I need and everything you need that we would live above all those things that tend to sap out the, the, the vitality of the Christian life. Well, let's take a look then at what these, this free gift is. Because as I mentioned, free gift appears five times. In verse 15, it's the free grace gift of Jesus himself. In verse 16, it's the free grace gift of Christ for our justification. And in verse 17, it's the free grace gift of Christ for our, 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 just, our righteousness. Now, the free gift that's worthy of itself is that you see within this that this is something that we are to receive based on no merit. And in fact, if you, if you try to earn this, that is one of the heights of blasphemy, is to think that you can earn your salvation, is to think that you can earn justification, to think that you can earn righteousness, to think that you can take Jesus and add something else. Not only is that error, but it's also the height of blasphemy. Because you know what it is? It is an attack on the grace of God. It is an attack on the grace of God. Let's take a look then at verse 15 through 17. Well, 15, just the first part. The free grace gift of Christ. So we looked at the gift, or I should say the grace of God, and we looked how wonderful and beautiful that is. But now let's take a look at the free grace gift of Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He doesn't mention justification. He doesn't mention righteousness. He will. What he mentions is the person of Jesus. He focuses on the person of Jesus. And this, what this shows us is the absolute importance and centrality of a Christ-centered hermeneutic in the Bible and in your life. Is everything that you have today as a Christian, it came from God's grace. But if you tried to get that straight from God to you without the mediator, you don't get it. Every single thing that we have comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And I know as Christians, and some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, I know that you know that. But here's the challenge I give to you as I give myself. Have you lost the wonder of the incarnation? Have you lost the wonder of what it means to be a Christian? Have you lost the amazing wonder that the living God lives within? And that Paul would emphasize one man, 
the one man Christ Jesus, not just here, he would also emphasize that in verse 17. The Apostle Paul walked with the living Christ. He walked in union and communion with the living Christ. Now the definite definite article that appears before gift points us to the source of God's grace flowing to us. And that person is Jesus. Ephesians 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, it is the unfolding of God's grace in sovereign, the sovereign work of salvation. And do you know before he even talks about redemption, adoption, predestination, Sealing, before he talks about all those glorious outflows of his grace, he points to the person of Jesus. And what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? They're all, the boys are up there. Can you imagine being asked by Jesus to go on a camping trip to pray? And so they're up there. Peter, as impulsive as he is, he has to have something to say. He's, 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 he's overwhelmed. And he says, well, uh, let's build some tents here. It's good to be here. Let's just and Elijah, Moses. But then what happens? A cloud overcomes them. They can't see. And you hear the Father. This is my beloved Son. And then the clouds go away, and what is the only thing, or I should say, what, what do they see? And the Scripture says, Jesus only. Friends, that's Christianity. It's Jesus only. Now, I'm not talking about a soft Christology. I'm talking about a Jesus of the Bible. A Jesus that we understand defined by the Bible. A Jesus that I prayed through the revelation. The Jesus of magnificent beauty and holiness. Not that humble Jesus who walked on a donkey, but the, but the majestic, authoritative God who rules with a sovereign hand and is calling out people into his family and is to be worshipped in spirit and truth by a people that are humble, that are contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. And Paul would say in Romans chapter 5 that here's what you are in Christ and it's all because of Christ. Friends, don't lose the wonder of the incarnation. Don't lose the wonder of communion with Christ. Beg God to make him known to you. Now, I'm not going off on some weird mystical tangent, but we we cannot, we we have not got to be afraid of experiential Christianity. Experiential Christianity is biblical Christianity. Tell me how you possibly can encounter the living God, receive forgiveness of sins, be given eternal life, and not have an experience. Now, I'm not saying that you fabricate it, and there's too much out there to try to fabricate the experience. You don't fabricate it. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land. You seek him and let him define the time, the place, and how the experiences occurs. But what will be common, and it is common throughout revival periods, when God reveals himself in the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the characteristic of his people are a brokenness and a humbleness that are fervent for the things of him. And so Paul would have us look at Christ 
for whom all blessings flow. He was saying in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. What do we find in Isaiah? Behold your God. What do we find in the, uh, in, in the crucifixion site, the Roman centurion? Behold, he truly was the son of God. Behold the man, as Pilate would say. I, I think in my own life, and forgive the personal side of this, I, I want a Christianity that is centered around behold the man. Behold the man. Because if we're living in the presence, and I'm not saying always the felt presence of Christ, but if we're living with a conscious awareness of Him and the magnificence of His grace and the beauty of what He's done in justification and righteousness, you know what we'll be? We'll be a loving people. We'll be a dying to self people. We will be a humble people. And the world will take notice that we have been with who? Not each other, but with Jesus. Just like it said in the early book of Acts. But as we look at our, our, our verses 16 through 17 and observing the work obedience of Jesus, we must not start with the work of Jesus. We must start with the person of Jesus. If we just focus on what Jesus does, then you know what we'll lose? We'll lose the wonder of relationship. If we just focus on what he does, even in our prayer lives, what if we are all about praying for him to do something and he doesn't do it? What happens then? I pray every day, I pray every day that the consequence of my stroke would go away. And I wake up every day, and so far it hasn't happened. And it hurts. What if God chooses not to remove that? What if God chooses to remove from you what is causing you anguish? What if that thorn in the flesh is not removed from you? And if all your life is built on what Jesus does in your life, you are going to be a miserable Christian. What are we supposed to do with this? We're not supposed to focus just on the works of Christ. We are to focus on the person of Christ. Again, what does John say in John chapter 1 when he describes the deity and the humanity of Christ? He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did they see? Certainly they saw the power of the miracles, but what they saw was the Son full of grace and truth. He says, From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's a new book out there by uh, Jaunty Rhodes. It's, it's called Man of Sorrows. And he compares the Man of Sorrows with the humiliation of Christ. And it, it's, it's a riveting little book. And Rhodes said this, quote, At the end of the day, salvation is not a gift from Jesus. It is the gift of Jesus. What God gives us is his son. You get the son, you get salvation. But if you focus just on what he's done, I would argue that you're going to have a very, very lukewarm relationship. If I just love my wife and just all she does for me, and she does so much, but if it wasn't first and foremost about who she is, then that relationship is going to become very stale.
It's the same thing with us in our relationship with God. So I, I'm emphasizing this here because Paul's writings, as it unfolds beyond Romans, it's all about Christ. It's a Christ-centeredness. It's, it's a passion to know him. In Philippians 3.10, his testimony was this, that I might know him. Friends, is that your testimony? Is your Christianity so enamored with the person of Jesus Christ that you cry out, I just want to know you. I just want to experience the beauty of your grace, the beauty of your holiness, and to be transformed into that image so that when I see you, literally, it won't be a complete surprise. Every one of us as believers right now are one breath away from our faith becoming sight. Should that not motivate us to want to know him more and more and more? It's interesting that if you read the accounts of some of the great movements of God, do you know what centered all those, and I mentioned that, is the centrality of Christ. David Brannard, you know him, the Indian, the missionary to the Indians in the 1700s. This is what Brainerd said, and he was greatly used by God to reach the North American Indians. He said this, that he saw the greatest effect of his preaching among the Susquehanna Indians of North America in the 1940s, quote, when I insisted upon the compassions of a dying Savior, the plentiful provisions of the gospel, and the free offers of divine grace to needy, distressed sinners, end quote. And remember, he preached to an interpreter. He says, I saw God do his greatest works when my preaching emphasized the compassions of a dying Savior, the plentiful provisions of the gospel, that's beyond salvation, and the free offers of divine grace. Is that what what Paul's not doing in Romans? He's emphasizing the free grace in the person of Christ, the dying, justifying Savior. And he's giving us the, the, the splendor of divine grace. Here's another account, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards wrote of the revival in Northampton in New England in 1733. He described the centrality of Christ and the cross in the lives of the people. Quote, in all companies, on other days or whatever occasion persons met together, Christ was to be heard of and seen in the midst of them. Our young people, now get a hold of this, our young people, when they met, were wont to spend the time in talking of the excellencies and the dying love of Jesus. The glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free, and sovereign grace of God, His glorious work in the conversion of a soul, and the truth and certainty of the great things of God's Word, end quote. He was saying that when fellowships occurred among the young and it extended, he says it wasn't about trivial things. They talked about eternal things. They talked about the beauty of Christ. And so I am challenged, and I challenge you, when you're in fellowship with other Christians, is Christ in those fellowships? Paul would have it to be so. He says, the free gift of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he would move on. Look at verse 16. And now he would tell us, well, what what comes from that? What is the benefits of those now in Christ? And the first one is the free gift of justification. The free gift of justification. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment of following, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So he's again giving the contrast. 
what happened in Adam, now what happens in Christ. And, and he's given two positions here. And there's, there's two positions, the Adam position and the Christ position of those in those two humanities. And the first one that we read, he says, For um, the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So the first thing, sin and trespasses places all those outside of Christ in the condition or position of condemnation. Of condemnation. And here's something about that. And this is what's common to both of these positions. It is unalterable by self or conduct. What you are in Adam, you cannot change by self or conduct. And what you are in Christ, amen, you can't alter by self and conduct. And it's so wonderful to read. And we're going to get there someday, Romans 8. We're going to get there. Isn't it so wonderful to say that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know that nothing includes? Me. Me. Because I think it was John MacArthur who said, I don't know, but if I could lose my salvation, I certainly would. If I could lose my salvation, I certainly would. Because my conduct is not always becoming a child of God. And I am so grateful that my adoption and my identity as being in Christ is not based on conduct or my conduct. It's based on His. It's based on what He has done. And so we see here in verse 16, we see the two, the contrasting positions. First we see uh, in Adam the position of condemnation. In Christ we see the position of justification. And the most encouraging part about that, if you're in Christ, is that it wasn't something that you did. It's what you received. It's what you received. And he would say that, you know, in this text here, that we are to receive, that we have to receive uh, this very thing. But it's important, I think, that we understand what justification is. Because Paul says that, that we, are off, we are given justification in Christ. I know it's a big word. And one of the dangers that we must, must avoid as Christians today with each other, let's don't assume we know something. Let's, let's assume we don't, let's don't assume that we have our theology down. Is if I gave you a piece of paper and I, and I ask you, and here's your test for the day, I said, I want you to define what justification means biblically and provide scriptural support and you're not allowed to use your Bible. How many of you could do it? Again, that's not a cut on you. Our goal here as pastors, as elders, is to teach you sound truth from the Bible so that you could, without question, answer that question. Because justification is so important. Because justification is your chief weapon against the devil. It is your chief weapon in your warfare. Perhaps one of the great... Great books uh, written on justification was written by a man named James Buchanan. Banner Truth publishes his book just called Justification. And he defined it as this, quote, Man's acceptance with God, his being regarded and treated as righteous in his sight, as the object of his favor and not of his wrath, of his blessing and not of his curse. But it's important that we understand that when Paul says here that this free gift of justification, we need to understand what's required so that we can be the recipients of such a, 
astounding work of grace. In order for justification to happen to the believer sinner, the believing sinner, is that God's justice must be satisfied. God will not give us a pass when it comes to his holy law. And Paul has gone throughout the first four, even in, even in chapter 5, that the law will not save. But there are people out there that think that if I just, I'm just a little good. They, they forget that God's law is perfect and it will not alter. That there is no, there is no pass, there is no grading on a curve. And so in order for us to be justified, that will include righteousness, which is they're separate, but they're inseparable is that God's justice must be satisfied. You must be convinced as a sinner that you are under condemnation and that there's not a single thing that you can do to alter that. If you don't believe that, then you are going to try and, and either subtlety or uh, uh, overtly, you are going to try to justify yourself by your conduct and it's going to be based on your standard and not God's standard. And if I compare myself with other people, even as a Christian, I can compare myself with other Christians. And you know what I'll do because I'm still fighting sin? I will certainly compare myself with someone that's not nearly as good as me. And so will you. That's what the Pharisee and all of us does. Is we'll look around and we'll compare ourselves with someone else. And even as Christians, we'll compare, well, I would never do that. Don't ever say that. I would never. How could they? Well, the reality of it is, is that there's still remaining within us, remaining sin. As Anne McShane once said, there's not a sin under the sun that you're not capable of committing. And so in this justification, we must be settled. If we're going to be the recipients of this free grace of God unto justification, where he looks upon us with favor, with no wrath, and with no curse, then something has to happen for the justice of God to be satisfied. And it's captured well, and I'm not going to go through all of that. It's captured well in John 19, verse 30, and the sixth words from Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. Do you notice that in those words Jesus says, he doesn't provide the subject? What's finished? Our Savior cries from the cross, what's finished? Well, multiple things. Number one, his suffering was finished. Number two, the work of redemption, the sacrifice was finished. And here's another one. Satan was finished. Is that the cross becomes the cry of victory. It is finished is a triumphal cry of victory. And you and I enter into that. And here's what you have to do in your battle against the devil. Because we are told in the revelation that he is the accuser. And that he works night and day to accuse the brethren. And so when you sin and you will. And when you fall short, which you will. And the devil rushes in with the fiery darts of doubt. How could you be a Christian? Look at what you're doing. Same thing over and over. Well, the devil comes with you and says, yeah, look at you. He won't forgive you again. What do you do with that? Well, here's what you do. As you look at him and you say, it is finished. It is finished. And oh, by the way, devil, you are too. Because on the cross is my justification. On the cross is the one who satisfies God's justice for me. On the cross is the one who took my guilt. 
On the one is the cross who lived a perfect life, fulfilled a law that I could not keep, a law I did not keep. And I, he took the penalty for the law I broke. And so, yes, devil, I do sin. Yes, I do fail. But, you, but devil, my Savior is full of grace. And my Savior, because of the fullness of grace that's in Christ Jesus, God the Father has blessed me with all spiritual blessings in Christ, and He has declared me righteous before Him, not because of my conduct, because of His. So it is finished, and so are you. Friends, justification is how you live the Christian life. You live from an objective position, not a subjective experience. And if you live in this objective truth of being justified, and you always look at the cross, and you always keep this intimate relationship with the living God, you know what happens? Is vibrant Christianity becomes that. Is that justification is not just some cold doctrine stuffed away in a theological book. Justification becomes the fuel of your joy. It becomes the, the power to live above all the, the heartache and sorrows of life. Why? Because God constantly looks down at you in favor. And it's all because of Jesus. But let's go on. Look what he says in verse 17. Not only do we have this objective declaration of justification, it is finished. But it leads to this righteousness, the free gift of righteousness. We have the free gift of Christ. We in verse 16, we have the free gift of justification. Then in verse 17, we have the free gift of righteousness. And we also have another contrast in verse 17. This time, though, we'll see the word reigned. The contrast before was, just, was a simple statement of what we are in Adam and what we are in Christ. Now, it's life. It's relational. This contract is, this contrast is about life. This word reigning or reigned, it means to have control of. It means to control completely as a supreme authority over. And look what Paul would say in verse 17. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. So here we have the contract, death reigned upon those in Adam. And if you're outside of Jesus Christ, you have a king over you, a malicious evil king over you that is suppressing you and oppressing you and you can't break it. You are under the reign, the shackles of the devil and of your sin you're under a condemnation that you can't release yourself. So in Adam is the reign of death. Spiritual, physical, emotional, eternal. In Christ is the reign of righteousness. And that unto life. But I, but I want to look at this briefly in, in two ways. Because you must always look at the, at the Christian life. As we said, from objective truth to the subjective experience. Or you must look at it from position and not practice. Because if you wake up every day and you measure your Christianity by your practice, probably by 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning you're going to be pretty discouraged. Or maybe not that long, I don't know. Or maybe you're, you're more disciplined and by noon. But if you constantly are evaluating your relationship and your fellowship with God based on your conduct, you are not going to enjoy the Christian life. 
You're going to constantly be falling short, falling short, falling short. And next thing you know, you're going to be having the external lookings of a Christian with all the outward doings without the inward reality of the person of Jesus Christ. So we must look at this righteousness, as he says, in in two ways. In verse 17, we'll talk more about this um, later on, but in verse 17, he said, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life. To reign in life, remember, reign means control. In life, that does not mean just a position. It means practically. Righteousness in the Christian is practical. It's not just God declares me righteous. Justification leads to righteous living. Justification or sanctification, always the same. But I want you to look at this with me. Is the position that we have because of Christ and the amazing grace of God that declares us justified also makes us righteous in a position. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3 that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is talking about an imputed position. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What a wonderful picture of our position. Is we've been given the, the, the cloak of, of Christ's righteousness. And that's one coat you can never take off. Is if forever you are wearing his righteousness. That is a position that is unalterable by your conduct. It will always be the same. Robert Haldane, one of the great Scottish uh, commentators, he said this, quote, The believer is one with Christ as truly as he was one with Adam. He dies with Christ as truly as he died with Adam. And get this, Christ's righteousness is his as truly as Adam's sins was his. Christ's righteousness is his as truly as Adam's sin was his. I gave you a John Bunyan quote on uh, righteousness on the cover of your bulletin. I would encourage you to ponder that. It's, it's pretty deep. It's short, but it's deep. But here's what I want us to understand. That when you look at this righteousness that Paul says, the free gift through Christ, it's not only a position, but it's also a practice. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. This is our last scripture. A justified person will always lead to a righteous person. A righteous in position, but a righteous in conduct. Always. And John would show us this in his first letter. Position of righteousness produces the practice of righteousness. Or of righteous deeds. Or of righteous conformity to God's law. Now as you read this, I want you to think about this. Because if you doubt your salvation, and Pastor Jonathan is going to preach on doubt tonight, I encourage you to come back. Is that when you look at, when you look at, uh, at times and periods of doubt, how do you overcome those? This is a great way for you to be assured. Look what John says in 1 John 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You see a wonderful uh, marriage here? There's a marriage between being and doing. He says, whoever practices righteousness or doing, the doing Christian life, is righteous being the Christian life. 
as he is righteous. There's the implication of our union. A wonderful, wonderful, and First John is your book of assurance. And so John would give us assurance by saying, listen, when you're going through periods of doubt and you have a lack of assurance, just look at your life. You have received the gift, the free gift of grace in the person of the Lord Jesus. In receiving that, you have received justification. And you have received a position of righteousness. Now, by the way, both of those, those aren't experienced. You don't, always, you don't feel those. They're, they're true because God says they're true. But then as you look at your life and say, but I, I just don't feel, I, I'm, I'm struggling with doubt. Then look at your life and ask the Spirit of God to show you is if, your, if, your, if your life, the overall body of work, is it not bent towards righteous deeds? And the true Christian that's justified, it will be bent towards righteous deeds. Do you not want to be righteous? Do you not want to be a practicing Christian in righteousness? Don't you, don't you have righteous deeds? Righteous deeds of love? of kindness, righteous deeds that Jesus separates the sheep from, sheep from the goat. When I was sick, you visited me when you was in prison. You clothed me when you, all those type of things, all those works of benevolence, which are righteous deeds that flow from the righteous person. We are in the person of Jesus. So we saw today the second humanity, those in Christ it's all based on the free gift of the person of Jesus. Always start with the person of Jesus. Never get away from the person of Jesus. Don't get wrapped up in what he does. Get wrapped up in who he is and then marvel over what he does. We also looked at the free gift of justification. That God declares us righteous in a position that is unalterable because Jesus fulfilled the law in all of its demands, both living and by way of penalty paying. And then we saw the free gift of righteousness, which is equally a position Wearing the, the, the coat of Christ's righteousness, which means that you'll never be viewed any other way. But because of that, it produces a life of righteous deeds. And righteous deeds, not that you would look at those to earn salvation, but those righteous deeds will affirm your salvation. Because they are the outflow of an imputed righteousness by the one who is ever so kind, so loving, and so desires that we would know him and that we would model him, and that we would show the world the reality of who he is. Father, thank you so much for your, your amazing book. Thank you for the gift of your son. Lord, forgive us when we focus so much more on the gifts and not the giver. May we be so enamored with Christ and so have such a holy passion to know him, to be transformed, to be like him, and that, Lord, from our understanding of who he is, we would rejoice even more so that he did the great work of justifying us before our Father. And that because of that, we are now righteous, wearing a, a cloth of righteousness we could not earn, would not earn, that is forever ours, never to be taken off. And because of that, we are a people zealous for good works, zealous for righteous deeds that give evidence that we are indeed a righteous people, justified because of the free gift of the grace that is in Christ. So, Father, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.